We will be in Exodus, the first two chapters or so, Exodus chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall li- she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But the, they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And she saw that when he was a fine child, she, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. 
And the child went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. O merciful and almighty God, Lord, your power is on display in this passage, and your promises of multiplying your people, of seeing the Abrahamic promises fulfilled come to life in this text. O Father, may we, as our dear sir, as those dear servants in our text that we have just read, may we too have such a faith in the promises of God that even when evil comes, our faith will not waver. May you, O Father, increase our faith this night that we might delight all the more in you and you be glorified. Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask that you would please bless us now. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Let me just first start off and say this is the beginning of the Exodus series. And again, as I said earlier uh, today during the announcements, I'm so excited to be doing this with my brothers. Um, it's a unique opportunity. It might be a little eclectic, but I think it's going to be fun. Uh, I just look forward to see how this unfolding narrative of how it all comes together, that it all culminates in this one cohesive message, and that ultimately our aim as preachers to you, to this congregation, that you would see this unified message coming across even though we are very four distinct individuals. And Lord, uh, and may the Lord bless uh, this effort because it is well worth our time to study this vitally important passage or section of Scripture, the Exodus. So with that in mind, let's begin. In Genesis 15, God made many promises to Abraham, right? God promised that Abraham's son would be his own heir instead of Eliezer. Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the stars above and that they would possess the land of Canaan. We know this promise, right? It's bread and butter uh, passages for those who grew up in the church. It's one of those great texts of Scripture that is referenced throughout the greater story of the Bible. But God makes another promise to Abraham there in Genesis 15 about his offspring that is often overlooked. God promises to Abraham that his offspring will be slaves in a foreign land and would be afflicted for 400 years. God promised to bring judgment upon that nation. And he also promised that Abraham's children would come out of that persecution with great possessions. In our passage tonight, we have the prelude to the Exodus. The story of God fulfilling His promises to Abraham. Abraham's offspring, the sons of Israel, have flourished in the land, as we see there in the first seven verses. But they have also just now come under great affliction. A new Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph, verse 8. This Pharaoh had not known of God's covenant dealings with the sons of Israel. This Pharaoh 
was an unbelieving enemy who saw God's blessing upon Israel as a threat to his own name. And so he brought harm upon the people of God. This story should sound familiar to us, brothers and sisters. When God's enemies see His blessing upon His church, upon His people, they set their evil upon us. Our enemies set their evil upon us. This affliction can make us doubt God's purpose for our lives. But this is what we should see for tonight, brothers and sisters. We must trust the promises of God even when the enemy's evil seems so great. That's what we must see. We must trust the promises of God even when the enemy's evil seems so great. In our passage tonight, we we see two main points being this. We must trust the promises of God because one, their evil cannot stop God's promises. And because two, God will use their evil for our good. Let's repeat that again. We must trust the promises of God because their evil cannot stop God's promises and because God will use our enemy's evil for our good. So for our first point, we must trust the promises of God because evil cannot stop God's promises. In chapter 1, the Hebrews continue to flourish despite Pharaoh's evil schemes. For this first point, I really want us to take a, a real quick but a close look at our villain, Pharaoh. In verses 8 to 11, Pharaoh sees that Israel has become this great people. At first, he worries that Israel would join Egypt's enemies in war and escape from his empire, that they would escape, that he would lose his people. But like every tyrant, Pharaoh wanted to keep God's people consolidated under his power. And to break Israel's spirit, Pharaoh afflicted them with forced labor to build up Egypt's military defenses. Israel built the military outposts of Pithom and Ramses. And notice how Israel's slavery is is described in verses 13 and 14. The Egyptians made their lives bitter. With hard service. With brick and mortar. I don't want you to miss what, how Pharaoh is being described here. Pharaoh shows the same pride and characteristics as the men who built the Tower of Babel. Remember that God commanded Adam and then Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? They were to, they were to spread God's image and glory across the earth. And in a small part, Israel was already doing that in their land. There's so many Israelites that they are spilling over into the land. But at Babel, wicked men gathered and used brick and mortar to build a grand tower to venerate their name and so that their conjoined power would not be lost. So instead, this image of spreading is all about consolidating. Consolidating for their own worship. Likewise, Pharaoh did not want to lose his gathered power from the Hebrews. Pharaoh built a city in his honor after his name, Ramses. And then, Pharaoh even used the same building materials. And Moses wants us to catch that. They even used brick and mortar. 
But the most astounding thing here is the contrast between the men at Babel and Pharaoh. Pharaoh had a greater evil. He ruthlessly enslaved God's precious saints to hard labor and made their lives bitter. But even as Israel was confronted with this seemingly impossible evil, look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Pharaoh's plan backfired. God's people were breaking forth in the land. And the imagery is is of them spilling over. Babel's downfall ended with image bearers spreading over the earth. And likewise, Pharaoh's foil plan ends with God's people flooding Egypt. You've got to love the irony. Pharaoh's evil would not stop God's promise to Abraham to multiply the sons of Israel. Oh no. The Egyptians were in dread of Israel because they saw God's people spread God's glory in their territory. You've got to love it. You've got to love it. Our God was winning even in the face of this impossible evil. But here, it takes a desperate turn. In his defeat, Pharaoh hatches another desperate plan, even more diabolical than the first. In verses 15 to 16, he comes to the chief Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, and he says to keep all the daughters alive, but to kill all the male sons once they are born. Kill the male sons. Pharaoh stooped to infanticide. A great and grievous evil that is still celebrated in our day. But Pharaoh's schemes were far more than about taking an innocent life, as grievous as that is. By killing the males only, Pharaoh was erasing future soldiers to protect Israel's identity. And he was forcing Israel's daughters to be dominated by Egypt. He knew what he was doing. But most tragically of all, Pharaoh's act was deeply theological. He was seeking to destroy the promises of God by destroying the heirs of the promise, Abraham's sons. Pharaoh was a great king with absolute rule over these midwives. Disobedience meant sure death if they came against Pharaoh. With such horrifying power before their eyes, surely the promises of God seemed gone. They were gone. Before this great evil, before this great Pharaoh, with all this power, surely the promises were done. But that is why we live by faith and not by sight. Look at the faith of the midwives in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Even faced with the horrible presence of Pharaoh, these precious midwives knew who their God was. They believed God's promise and His power, not Pharaoh's. And so they obeyed the true king, even if it meant sure death by Pharaoh's hand. 
But once again, God gets all the glory. God shows that Pharaoh's great evil cannot stop his abounding purpose for the Israelites. His abounding promises. See verses 18 to 21. I love this little back and forth. Pharaoh asks, why have you disobeyed? And look at the, the response of the midwives. It's almost hysterical. The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptians, O Pharaoh. They are filled with life and give birth before we get there. Some people think that the midwives are, are lying or mocking, mocking in their response. I don't think so. No, they're not. They're not mocking in their response. They're not trying to trick Pharaoh here. No, 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 no. They are testifying to the truth of what God is doing among His people. And for their faith and obedience, God rewards the midwives with families of their own. Pharaoh and his people are impotent before the power of of the Hebrews' God and the power at work among his people. No, the Egyptians are not like the Hebrews. There's life and God is at work. In verse 21, Pharaoh comes yet again with another attack. He commands the Egyptians to drown the males in the Nile. It's another attack of astounding evil. And we need to catch this. The text leads us to believe that many sons indeed were cast into the Nile. Had Pharaoh won? The promise of God seemed to wither as each child was taken by Pharaoh's evil hand. How do you think Israel responded to this sight? How would you respond, seeing all that has taken place? Despair? Would you give up hope? Would you compromise and give in to Pharaoh's mania? Fine. Whatever we can do just to stop this. Fine. Why not just assimilate into Egypt? It may ease your heartache. But considering what we've seen so far, brothers and sisters, to despair or to compromise would be foolish. It would be foolish. Because every time Pharaoh's evil grew greater, God's glory shone brighter. Brothers and sisters, our faith in God's promises must not be based upon our temporary woes or the evil that we see or the evil of our enemies, however great it may seem. Rather, we should share the faith of the midwives. We should always trust and obey God because the evil of the enemy will never stop God from fulfilling His promises. Israel and the midwives were under a great duress They were slaves who had no rest from their earthly evil masters. And oftentimes we find ourselves in a similar situation. Dear Christian, at some point you will suffer the attacks of your enemies. But how will you respond? I think the great many of us have been through some form of persecution for our faith. Even if it's a a smaller way. A confrontation from an extended family member, or, or gossip from your co-workers, or some other kind of rejection from your friends or community. 
Like Israel and Egypt, maybe your mere presence as a Christian has begun, has begun to step on their ways of life. And they respond with hatred and vitriol and disdain. But what is often our response to these grievances? These minor grievances? Do you huff and puff, complain, and, and are you surprised? Do you complain to your spouse on the ride home about that person that had wronged you or had talked meanly about you over social media or any other various ways that we are grieved this day? What does Peter say? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised. What he's saying here is this. Remember God promised to Abraham that Israel would suffer. And God has promised the same for the church. Brothers and sisters, let me say this to you. We will suffer. We will suffer many minor grievances and afflictions, we will suffer. But Peter goes on, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God blessed Israel when Egypt persecuted them. And God blessed the midwives with their own families after their trial. And dear brother, dear sister, our God will bless the Christian in his trials because Christ's glory is revealed in our joyful sufferings. Dear Christian, don't lose sight of this promise when you suffer for the sake of Christ. Do not respond in sin to that unbeliever who attacks you. Offer your cheek. Go the extra mile. Love your enemies because that is heaping burning coals on their head to the glory of Christ. Every time they defame you, mock you, or persecute you, they are making Christ shine brighter and brighter in you. Brothers and sisters, Christ will always win. Dear Christian, Christ has promised suffering, but He has also promised His glory in your suffering. Our enemy's evil cannot stop Christ's promise, so rejoice Rejoice and magnify Christ in your sufferings. And we should have the same faith and obedience even if the persecution becomes far greater than just some unkind words or attitudes. And this is where the rubber meets the road for our actual souls and our obedience. Pharaoh and Egypt used their power to abuse God's people. Brothers and sisters, that reality is never too far from us. 
We need to know that our enemy's attacks can become more severe. And it will come from those in power over us. That is promised. Our enemies will tempt us to compromise our faith. Just as Pharaoh did with the midwives. But we must be bold as the apostles before the Sanhedrin and say, we must obey God rather than men. And like the midwives, we must be willing to suffer the consequences for following God, no matter what that may bring. So prepare prepare yourselves now. Be resolved not to repay great evil with greater evil, nor repay evil with lesser evil, but hold to the precious promises of Christ in your suffering. As the apostle gave us an example, After having been beaten, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Dear Christian, persecution will come. Even greater evil will come. But Christ promises His glory in it. And so, brothers and sisters, let this be your refrain. Trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Our enemy's evil cannot stop God's promises. But God gets even more glory by taking it a step further. This brings us to our second point. We must trust the promises of God because God will use their evil for our good. In chapter 2, Pharaoh's schemes produces Israel's Savior. At the end of chapter 1, Pharaoh continued his infanticide by throwing Israel's sons into the Nile. In this act, Pharaoh made the Nile what we could call waters of death. They were the waters that drowned the promises of God. But this sets the scene for Moses' appearance in chapter 2. In verses 1 and 2, we see that Moses' father and mother, who would become known as Amran and Jochebed, were Levites. Though the Levites had not yet been chosen as priests yet in the story of Exodus, the original audience would see that Moses was set apart because of his lineage. God had a special task for Moses. And in verses 2 and 3, Moses' mother can no longer hide him. There was no escaping the waters even for God's chosen one. And so Moses' mother made a little reed basket and sealed it with pitch. So though Moses had to go into the waters of death, death could not take him. And notice this. This is a a wonderful imagery that we should see. The word basket is a loan word for the Hebrew. The word basket in Hebrew is a loan word from Egypt. And the Egyptian word means coffin what you put dead folks in. It's used only one other time in the Old Testament to describe Noah's ark. So the imagery here is rich. Just as Noah's coffin escaped the waters of death, Moses does as well. And just as the promise of a redeemer continued with Noah, so it does with Moses. Pharaoh's waters could not stop the promises of God. Though Pharaoh meant all this for evil, the casting of the uh, the children into the Nile, making of the waters of death, 
God used this to show Israel's coming redemption. Earlier, Pharaoh said to keep all the daughters alive. But in verses 4-10, to to the end of the chapter, both a Hebrew daughter and his own daughter would undermine this plan. Let's look there. Moses' sister, Miriam, as she would be called later, wanted to see what would happen to baby Moses. In God's providence, Moses floated to Pharaoh's daughter as she was bathing with her royal entourage. In verse 6, Pharaoh's daughter recognized Moses as a Hebrew child, but she had pity on him. Who wouldn't? It's a precious child. Coming down along, it's an adorable scene. What monster would do this to a child? Mm. But Miriam, a Hebrew daughter, the ones that Pharaoh had spared, intervened at just the right time. Shall I call a Hebrew nurse for the child? Pharaoh's daughter agreed. And Miriam brought back Moses' mother, who had just sent him down the Nile, back to Pharaoh's daughter. And so see the rich irony here in verse 9. Pharaoh's daughter asked Moses' mother to take Moses away and to be his mother, to be his nurse. Mothers, imagine getting paid... Now, excuse me, Pharaoh's daughter even pays his mother to do this. And so, mothers, imagine getting paid a royal wage for taking care of your own kid. That's quite the deal, right? I expect a few amens out of those feminine voices from you, but come on. This is rich irony here. His mother's wage here in this text is a prelude to what would take place later in the book. The Egyptians will give Israel all their riches so that they leave the land, right? But in verse 10, Moses' mother gives him back to Pharaoh's daughter to become her son. Just the dynamic that we see there. But as we know from Acts 7, Moses was taught the wisdom of Egypt so that he could do battle with them later. He was not only sacking the Egyptians of their riches, but also of their knowledge. And Moses' royal position would allow him to escape the suffering of his people. But in Hebrews 11, it teaches us that Moses knew who he belonged to. He rejected his title as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he would come to suffer with and for his people. But even Pharaoh's daughter knew that Moses did not belong to Egypt. Again, a little play with Egyptian and Hebrew language. Look at the reason she names him in verse 10. Moses, in the Egyptian tongue, meant son of, meaning son of so-and-so, like Tut Moses or Ab Moses. It was very common. It just simply means son of. But rather than taking the Egyptian meaning, Pharaoh's daughter took the Hebrew to name him. He was drawn from the waters. Pharaoh left the Hebrew daughters alive. And so let's see all this from above, taking all this scene together. Pharaoh left the Hebrew daughters alive to conquer them. But God used Pharaoh's daughter to make Moses great in order to conquer Pharaoh later on in the book. What God meant for evil, God used for good. And so, brothers and sisters, with just this rich, rich text that we have here, I hope that you can already see Moses 
as a type of the greater Christ. Like Moses, Jesus' lineage showed that he was God's chosen servant. Like Moses, Christ also escaped slaughter as a child and would come up out of Egypt, Matthew 2. Like Moses, Jesus had a royal power in his divinity, yet he still came to his people to suffer with and for them. And like Moses, God used the wicked acts against his anointed to fulfill his promise of redemption for his people. Our Christ was crucified by the hands of lawless men. But all this was according to the definitive and definite plan of God. God loosened the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So like Moses and Noah before him, Jesus was covered in the waters of death, but rose again in life. Death could not hold the son of promise. And just as Moses' story is a prelude to the Exodus story that we will see in coming weeks, Christ is the prelude to our greater Exodus. He is the first fruits of the new creation. Like Pharaoh, Satan once bound us to sin and death. But as the better Moses, Christ has come to bind the strong man and to plunder his house. Oh, this is a glorious story. In his redemption, Christ has transferred us from Satan's kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Sin and death no longer hold us. We have been set free and we are led by Christ's hand and his promise that we will reach that promised land where we will worship God. Brothers and sisters, see this. The wickedness of man, led by the schemes of Satan, brought about the death of our Christ. But this heinous act simply qualified our Christ to bring about the redemption of us all. Our God sovereignly used the greatest act of evil in history to bring about the greatest act of salvation. And if our God can do this, if our God can do this, will He not surely bring you through those temptations and trials as He has promised that He will send? Will our God not bring you through that narrow gate? Will our God leave you to defend for yourself against the wiles of Satan as you're along the way? Of course not! If God can even use the evil of this world to fulfill His promise, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. So how will God not also, also give us graciously all things? Will He not take you all the way home to the promised land? Will He not bring you on eagles' wings to His holy abode? Dear Christian, you have believed upon Jesus Christ. You believe that God has redeemed you from Satan's pit by Christ's work. But your God does not leave you at the pit's edge to find your way back to the mountain where God is. He has given you a full Redeemer. He has given you a full Redeemer. And He will lead you all the way in your Christian walk. Christ not only led you through the waters of death, but Christ will bring you to the holy mountain of God by His own hand. And for those who do not know of Christ, children, I'm thinking of you, and so please look up to me. This promise of salvation is offered to you. 
This promise of salvation is offered to you. Do you see the evil around you? Make no mistake, children, there is evil around you. But more importantly, do you see the evil within you? Do you see the evil within you? Do you want freedom from your bondage to sin and death? Then come to Christ. He's a full redeemer. He will lift you from the pit of death. It doesn't matter how far you have been flung into and sunk into sin. It doesn't matter how far or deep you've been in sin. Because our God can always reach you. And He will lead all those, dear brothers and sisters, He will lead all those who trust in Him back to His heavenly home. None will be snatched from His hand. Dear saints, along our walk, we will be tried by the enemies of God. And along our walk, we will be tempted to return to the old man. In our weakest moments, we will long for our bondage in Egypt, as the Israelites did for their own cucumbers in their day. And in those vulnerable moments, Satan will accuse you and condemn you. And you will feel like a failure and a sham. I guarantee it. You will feel that God's grace is not really for you. You will say that you are not worthy. And you would be right. You are not worthy. But in those moments of despair, you must remember who is holding your hand along the way. You are not worthy, but your Redeemer is. Your Redeemer is. So who can condemn? Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us now. Can Satan with his accusations or trials of great evil remove Christ's hand from you? Who dares separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger? What if we even become as sheep as to be slaughtered? Oh, dear Christian, when our Christ looks at those trials, as Christ looks down from His heavenly abode, and as He sees the great evil, it is but a mere speck that He laughs at. Our Christ laughs at the evil that dares stand in our way. He laughs at the evils because He will use them to make us hold tighter to Him. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And so know for certain that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers whether they be satanic or otherwise nor height nor depth nor, thi- nor anything else in all of creation. Nothing. Nothing. Not even the greatest evil that you see out there or in here. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is His promise. We know that for all those, we know that for those who love God, all things, even the greatest evils, 
work together for good. Brothers and sisters, that is how big our Christ is. That is how gloriously powerful He is. And it's because of that power that we should place our precious souls into His hands. Because He will see us all the way along. And as that serpent comes along the path to accuse and condemn you, that just simply makes our souls cling to His precious hand. And He simply laughs at that serpent and shoes it away. And He will take you home. Oh, dear saints, hear this final word. No evil can stop the promises of God. And our God has and can use our enemy's greatest evil to fulfill His redemptive purposes. Satan's tyranny holds no power over you. And as we said at the beginning, God promised to Abraham an heir and offspring that would be innumerable. Our God has kept that ancient promise by sending His Son through the line of Abraham. And through the preaching of this Son's Gospel, God has made many sons of Abraham, those who are with us tonight, sons of the promise. And as we go through this Exodus story, we will see constantly how God kept His promise to redeem Abraham's physical descendants. But learn this story for your own soul. Because Israel's story is ours. Just as He brought Israel to Himself, our God will do the same for those in Christ Jesus. Nothing, not even the greatest evil imaginable, can stop our God. So trust Him and His promises now. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Let us pray. O merciful God, O faithful God, we thank You that You will keep us all the way. You have redeemed our life out of the pit and You will place us upon Your mountain where we will be planted in streams of living water where the tyranny of Satan and of his curse will no longer touch us or harm us where Satan can never accuse us, nor our conscience. But Lord, we will be in perfect and complete communion. And it is your promise to your church that you will bring us there. As we have seen tonight, O oh Father, nothing can stop you. And so may we give our souls into your hand, knowing that you will keep us all the way. What a marvelous God we serve. May we walk with you all the way. O oh, Father, bless the preaching of your word, and may you attend to any soul that does not know you now. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen.